I'm going to start with a question. Who needs good news? Right, anybody else? I need some good news. Um, and that's your introduction. Right? We all need good news right now. Uh, so, uh, our outline is in the back of your bulletin. It's three points tonight. We're going to look at this passage that Aaron's read for us. We're going to look at bad times, good news, and well-pleased. Bad times, good news, and well-pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we do need some good news. It's been a long week. So would you, in these moments, awaken our attention and refresh us? Melt us, convict us, and comfort us. I desire to preach tonight, but admit that I am weak and needy. I need your support and strength and holiness that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Help me not to treat the excellent matter of this passage in a defective way, or to bear a broken testimony to so worthy a Redeemer. And I pray these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen and amen. Well, I hope you're in Luke chapter 3. Luke begins chapter 3 like he did chapters 1 and 2. As I mentioned when our study began, and as Aaron reminded us last week, that Luke names governors and tetrarchs and Caesars to set the stories that he's sharing in an historical context. He wants the context, um, he wants us to know that those contexts are public in nature, and he wants us, of course, to know that these aren't simple myths or fables, or fairy tales. They weren't miss, or they were better than, they were set apart because they were true and they were real. And so he sets them apart from those myths, fables, and fairy tales of his time, but also for us. And the Caesars and governors and tetrarchs that he lists in verse 1 of chapter 3, again that Aaron read for us, tell us that the historical context of the passage in chapter 3 is not good. As a matter of fact, it's the, the times were bad, and that's really an understatement. Even a cursory glance at those names that he lists uh, provide for us well, the reality was that they were individuals, their lives and reigns revealed evil and corruption and idolatry and immorality and sensuality and degradation. And the names, um, and, and this wasn't just in the political or social arena Either they, It was also a part of the spiritual arena. The names Annas and Caiaphas found in verse 2 tells us that the religious arena at the time was infected as well. And they are actually, Annas and Caiaphas and the others were more politically minded than they were religiously minded. And we'll come to chapter 22 in our study and see to what extent that is true. 
So control and oppression and manipulation were all hallmarks of the power-hungry leaders, whether in the forum, the praetoriums, or synagogues. And to make matters even worse, God had not spoken in over 400 years. There had not been a prophet on the scene who was calling for spiritual reform or spiritual renewal. And so you can imagine that Israel was overwhelmed. They were growing more and more hopeless. Despair was on the rise, and they needed help. And the questions were, how long, O Lord? Why are you waiting? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why have you providentially appointed these ruthless, self-serving, godless people in the positions that they're in? We need relief. And the answer as we ask those questions is, and we, we try to answer them and we say, we don't know. We don't know the answers, why God is doing what He's doing. But what we do know is that He is sovereign and that He is perfectly wise. And in what He is doing, He is doing for His glory and for the good of those that He's called, the good of those who, who have been called according to His purpose, those He has redeemed according to the kind intention of His will. And fortunately, in the midst of the darkness of these bad times... The second half of verse 2 says this, the Word of God came to John. The Word of God came to John. And we ask, well, why is that significant? Well, first of all, the answer for bad times wasn't a, wasn't a new governmental or political or economical plan hatched in the mind of Pilate. Right? The answer uh, wasn't a change in policy that would result from his overthrow. It wasn't a change in policy that would result from a new election of a new governor. Secondly, the answer wasn't a new religious program hatched in the mind of Caiaphas and focusing on increased attendance at the synagogue or to be involved more within the community. Thirdly, as one commentator noted, the force of the preposition is that of pressure from above, that word upon. The word of the Lord came upon him, pressed down upon him from above. That means, of course, that this wasn't John's plan. He hadn't been sitting in the wilderness trying to think of and be creative in terms of what he might do to set things in motion in the, in the proper way. This was not something that was based in his own authority or a part of his own agenda. And finally, we know from these simple words that this wasn't plan B. Luke says in verses 4 to 6 that John and the word he was to deliver were both fulfillments of the words from God through the prophet Isaiah spoken some 600 years earlier. We know from our earlier studies of John that John had been created by God. He'd been set apart by God for such a time as this. That means that this was God's plan. John was his man. It was God's word and it was God's timing. 
But the question is, what was the word that John was to speak? What was he to speak in the midst of these bad times? And verse 18 tells us it was good news. We say, well, what was a part of that good news? Verse 18 tells us it was made up of many exhortations. First and foremost, though, is found in verse 3. It says that, and he went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John had been instructed to go out in public and to indiscriminately call people to repent. And this call to repentance wasn't new. The the call to repentance was something that every Old Testament prophet had been given the responsibility to do. But, But John's responsibility was different. This This addition of baptism was unique to him. Look at verse 4. It says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all uh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again, John had been created. John had been set apart and empowered to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That was his role. And the quotation that Luke uses from Isaiah chapter 40 reflects what was a common practice in Isaiah's day. It was a practice in which a king would announce his plan to come to a village And all of the people of the village would then go out and would clean up the path or the road that the king was to travel to come or enter into the village. And so they would pick up the rocks and they would fill potholes and portions of it would be flattened and other parts would be raised and in some cases they were to be widened. But Isaiah's point and therefore Luke's point is is not that John was called to literally prepare the road in in a physical sense, but he was to prepare the way, the spiritual road for the Messiah because the Messiah was coming to do more than something political, more than something social. The Messiah was coming to do something spiritual. He was coming to deliver them spiritually. He was to deliver them Again, for more than just their political or social woes, he was coming to deliver them from sin and death. And John was called to prepare the way for that Messiah. He was was called to prepare the way that included an external washing or cleansing. And that external washing or cleansing was to reflect the change of mind that he was calling them to, and that change of mind was to be reflected in how they lived. So John was preparing the way by calling people to repentance. And the people were preparing the way by repenting and by living as they were called to live. And that's because salvation begins at repentance. Salvation begins at the point of repentance. And John's baptism was the means by which the people were to outwardly confess their commitment to that preparation. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, our lives are 
rocky and crooked, like the wilderness of Israel. Mountains of pride need to be broken down and valleys of self-pity need to be raised so that God can come in. Christ the King finds easy entrance to any heart that is sorry for sin. To put it another way, repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. If we want God to save us, we need to turn away from our sin. So John was calling people to admit to admit their need because there is no forgiveness apart from repentance. Salvation begins at that point of humility and humbly acknowledging not only our sin, but the spiritual bankruptcy, our spiritual bankruptcy and inability to fix it. But again, this was all in preparation. It was all in anticipation because this was all pointing forward to the forgiveness that would be offered through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, repentance, while necessary for forgiveness, does not in and of itself have the power to remove or cleanse us from our sin. Only Jesus can do that. In the words of Daryl Bach, while the people were called to prepare for God's salvation, it was God who was preparing salvation for them and for us in a special person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, needless to say, John's ministry and his good news that he was delivering had a significant impact on people, both far and wide. He had a wide-reaching impact. And in verses 7 to 20, Luke actually provides a couple of examples of that impact. Now, the first group affected was the religious establishment. Luke simply says the crowds came out. Uh, Matthew says that there were many Pharisees and Sadducees within that group. And John, and they were coming to be baptized. And John responds in probably the least seeker-sensitive way possible by calling them vipers and snakes. And while there is debate in regard to the exact meaning of his question, which was, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, it's safe to say, based on verses 8 and 9, that he was confronting both their insincerity and their arrogance. Some were probably coming to be baptized to jump through the external, uh, external hoop, right? They, were, they wanted to, they were used to resting in their own work, all the while having no intention whatsoever of repenting, just as long as they did it. And they were trusting in that external washing and disregarding their need for internal cleansing. It's something that we're going to see throughout the gospel. And others were coming and disregarding both the external and the internal because they were trusting in their own spiritual pedigree. We're sons of Abraham. We're ethnic Israelites. We're ethnic Jews. So baptism for them, or actually baptism wasn't for them. Baptism was for Gentiles, not us. 
through trusting in who they were and what they were doing rather than in who God was and what he was going to do. And John says their physical connection to Abraham meant nothing. Their physical connection meant nothing. Their arrogance was not only poisonous to them, it was poisonous to those around them. And it would ultimately be their undoing. They may have been connected to Abraham physically, but Abraham's offspring, as we've learned, as we walk through Galatians in particular, that Abraham's offspring were actually spiritual in nature. God could raise up... John says, God could raise up children from rocks if he wanted to, because salvation is in his hands, in his hands alone. Being children of Abraham is not a matter of physical inheritance, but it's spiritual adoption, spiritual inheritance, resulting from the supernatural work of God. And then... He tells them they better pay attention because salvation begins at repentance. And true repentance, he says, results in a changed life. True repentance is reflected or made evident by good fruit. And he says, at this very moment, he said, there is an axe that's laying at the root of every tree. And that axe is in the hand of the Lord. And every bad tree that produces bad fruit is going to be cut down. And it's not only going to be cut down, it's going to be thrown into the fire to be burned. And he says, this cutting down and this burning is irreversible. There's no turning back. And so, In doing so, he's telling them, listen, stop trusting in yourselves. Repent of your sin. Stop living, stop living hypocritically. Stop saying one thing and doing another and live in light of your repentance. Because if not, judgment's coming. Now we hear that. And we start asking, how in the world is that good news? Why would would Luke describe this as good news? How is wrath and judgment good news? And brothers and sisters, it's good news because the good news isn't that wrath and judgment are coming. The good news is there's an alternative. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way. There is a way of salvation. The way has been prepared. The good news is that repentance and forgiveness is possible by the grace of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope. And that's good news we all need. Well, the second group, you'll notice, are the humble and penitent. In verse 11, he addresses people in general. In verse 12, he mentions tax collectors who were considered the lowest of the low. And then in verse 13, he mentions Jewish soldiers who were actually more like police or armed guards who would protect those tax collectors. And these groups come and they they ask, what must we do? And they're not asking about salvation. We hear that question and we think later, 
Right? We, th- we think of the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? That's not what they're asking. They're saying, look, you've called us to repent. We've repented. We've been baptized. Now what do we do? What does that fruit that you're talking about look like? And they're illustrating, as I mentioned to the children, they're illustrating question 87 of the Shorter Catechism. Listen, it says, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That's what they're doing. They're endeavoring after, they're, they're, they have the full purpose and are endeavoring after new obedience. And John's reply can be summarized this way. And we're going to look at the examples of it, but he, he, he basically says good fruit includes keeping the law, loving your neighbor, and acts of mercy. Listen to how John Noland, a commentator I read this week, how he puts it. He says, despite John's own detachment from society, he does not stand over against normal life in society. Unlike the classical Old Testament prophets, he does not address the society as such, so there is not here a fundamental question of the structure of society, nor the exposure of unjust class behavior, nor a call for community action. There is no call to leave society for a holy remnant, nor to leave behind normal engagements of life for an exclusive attention to holy matters." Repentance bears fruit in relationships between individuals in society. In other words, he doesn't tell them to quit their jobs or withdraw from society. He didn't tell them to war against the culture and storm the capital. He didn't call them to social activism or even peaceful protest. He didn't even define or describe a subjective level of remorse that they needed to feel or express, and He didn't give them a certain number of religious rites and ceremonies to perform or participate in. He said, in your personal day-to-day experience, in your life, in your relationships, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your churches, seek to live at peace with one another. Treat others equitably, justly, fairly, honestly, impartially. Meet your own needs as the Lord provides, and then out of the abundance He gives you, meet the needs of others. And I think we can take it even a step farther because notice, He answers each group personally in regard to what they were dealing with and their sin. He was calling them to repent of their sin and to turn and do something different. And when we look at the specifics, we could say, so whatever their personal sins were, 
if they struggled with greed or arrogance or gossip or bitterness or grumbling and complaining or lust, they were to repent. And then they were to begin living generously and humbly. They were to begin uplifting others, forgiving others, being thankful and being self-controlled. Children, if, if, they were, if there had been a group of children that had come forward and, and said, what must we do? If you're asking that question in your own mind, what must we do? We could say things like, well, if you're struggling with lying, repent and tell the truth. If you're having trouble obeying your parents, repent and begin obeying. If you're having trouble being kind to your brother or sister, Repent and be kind. Brothers and sisters, it's not rocket science. Now, while he's speaking, the people begin to wonder, is this, is this the Messiah? Is this the one? Sure sounds like it. Because they've been anticipating him. They've been expecting him. They're longing for his coming. And, and so what they're hearing from John is like, man, he is the perfect candidate. But John quickly steps in. Look at verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. And the Messiah is greater and more mighty than I could ever think or imagine. I'm not worthy to be his forerunner. I'm not worthy to be, to be his disciple. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Is the language that he's using. Because Jesus is the Savior and the judge. Much more mighty than I. And while John could call people to repentance and wash them with water, Jesus was the only one that could actually change them. Jesus could, could wash them, you know, baptize them externally. But Christ would baptize them internally. John could put water on them, but Christ would put the Spirit in them. And truly cleanse them and purify them from the dross of their sins. The good news was that Christ was coming and that he would, in fact, baptize them with the Spirit. And that Spirit would regenerate them, fill them, adopt them, unite them, sanctify them, and seal them. And again, this was good news because there would be a day when those who repent and those who wouldn't repent would be divided. And those who repent will be gathered together and spend eternity with Him and those who don't repent will be gathered 
and we'll spend eternity in hell. Again, the good news is that there is an alternative. There is an alternative. Well, as good as this news is and was, there are and always have been people who reject it. They don't like it. Many didn't like it, including Herod. And so Herod takes this opportunity to toss John in prison. And we know later in, in this gospel and others that Luke is, or John is beheaded. Brothers and sisters, you know that the good news isn't always well received. But its reception should not determine whether it's shared or not. John was faithful to his call. John was faithful to his message and was willing to do what he was called to do regardless of the outcome. And that brings us to verse 21. Well pleased. Look there if you will. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. After all who had come to John were baptized, Jesus comes and says, John, I want to be baptized. And Matthew lets us know that John protests, and he says, me baptize you? No, you should be baptizing me. And Matthew records that Jesus looks at him and he says, no, you must baptize me so that I might fulfill all righteousness. And we wonder what that means, but we we need to remember John's command. He was commanded by God. Remember verse 2, the word of the Lord came upon John. So John is calling people to repent and be baptized. So because God is calling, Jesus responds. Jesus responds in order to fulfill all righteousness, and so he obeys. And brothers and sisters, that obedience is credited to us. But not only that, that's not all. Because we have to remember that Jesus had no sin to repent of. He had nothing to be forgiven of at all. So by being baptized, what he's doing, rather than repent and and confessing his sin and his need to be forgiven, he is identifying with sinful humanity from the very beginning. He's identifying with us. He identifies with sinners and he takes their place and is baptized. And from the very beginning of his ministry, he's fulfilling the words of Isaiah. He was willing to be numbered among the transgressors. In being baptized, he communicated. He's saying, I'm going to take your sin upon myself. And I'm going to provide for you the forgiveness you need. Well, after being baptized, he prays. And as he prays, the sky opens. The Spirit descends upon him. And of course, being God, the Spirit had always been with him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't as if the Spirit had been absent from him. 
But as, as a human, he needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He needed the equipping and the empowerment for ministry. And then we come to the climax of the passage. The Spirit's descended upon him and the Father speaks. You are my son. You're my son. It's not new. This wasn't an adoption ceremony. Jesus was the eternal son. He had always been the son. But he had taken on flesh. He was the only begotten son of the father. And the father is saying, this is my son with whom I have a special relationship. I love him. And then he says, with you, not with him, with you, I am pleased. The Father speaks directly to the Son, I am pleased with you. I'm pleased with who you are. I'm pleased with your obedience and your submission. And this was the case throughout his ministry. It was always that way. As Aaron said last week, the father was pleased with him as an infant. The father was pleased with him as a young child. The father was pleased with him as an adolescent. The father was pleased with him as an adult. It was always that way. There was never a moment of disappointment or frustration on part of the father in regard to the son. He has been is and always will be pleased with him. Let me close with this. In the midst of these bad times, we are all looking for good news. But if we're honest, we're, there are times that we look for that good news in the wrong places. We're, we're looking for some kind of change. We're looking f to some person. We're looking to something. But the good news is in those areas is not enough. It's not enough. That kind of good news pales in comparison to the good news of the gospel. So I want you to hear that good news. I need to hear that good news. We all need to hear that tonight. The way has been prepared. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Him and in Him alone for your salvation, if you've repented and turned away for your, from your sin and turned to Him in faith, you need to know and you need to remember, you need to hear tonight that every sin of yours has been forgiven. The entirety of your guilt and shame has been removed. No matter how deep, no matter how great, the entirety of your debt has been paid. Regardless of how large. Because Christ has taken it all upon himself. John prepared the way for Christ. Christ has prepared the way for us. That's good news.
you who were once God's enemy, are now not only a friend, you're a child of his. You're a co-heir with Christ. And that means, brothers and sisters, that means that the love and affection and approval that the Father has for the Son, he has in its entirety for you. Right now. And on that day when we see him, when he returns and he takes us home, we will hear with our own ears, well done, good and faithful servant. You are mine. I love you. You are my beloved. With you, I am pleased. I delight in you. So no matter how bad things are, no matter how lonely, no matter how anxious, no matter how fearful or disappointed or hurt or ashamed or weary you might be tonight, that is the best news I can give. And if you aren't a believer, If you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, please hear that the way has been prepared. Hear the words of John, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Hear Jesus' own words, repent of your sin and turn to me. And everything that I've just described for those who are trusting in Christ is available to you. The same forgiveness, the same love is available for you tonight, right now. Today is the day of salvation. Thanks be to God for that good news. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Lay it up on our hearts and may we practice it in our lives for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen and amen.